All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us over here on the magical land of TeamSpeak on the 2nd of September, 2007. Without any further ado, I'm going to start with a, um, a, a snippet from a very interesting article that uh, is in a magazine called Hoppers, which I'm sure you're aware of. This is from May 2007. Uh, it's just that uh, I've been fairly rapid in the bathroom, so I haven't gotten through all the hoppers that I need to, but I did get to this one. And this is from an article by a gentleman named Gary Greenberg, and uh, it is called Manufacturing Depression, because depression, of course, is a very large topic in society as a whole, and it is a, um, a black dog that uh, seems to bring down FDR listeners from time to time when it's more than 30 or 40 seconds between podcasts. And look! I can totally understand that. Uh, that would make perfect sense to me. Uh, I know that if Christina doesn't hear a podcast pretty continuously, uh, there's uh, pretty hysterical reactions, which, of course, you can fully understand. They're just agreeing with me on the chat, right? Two to three hours without a podcast? That's like the guy who just broke the record for holding his breath, right? Which was like uh, 15 minutes or something like that. So... Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. So okay. This is the uh, this is the text. This gentleman signed up for a. Um, he's depressed because he lives in New York and he writes, and uh, he uh, signs up for a uh, a depression test. Right. So a clinical trial of a depression medicine based on this sort of fish oil omega three thing. So. Uh, this is what he has to say, and uh, I think it's very interesting when it comes to looking at the ev efficacy of uh, psychiatric drugs, which are the thing. Now, nobody talks to patients anymore in the psychiatric community. It's just bend over, and I'll make you better with a little pill. So this he writes, I'll just read a few paragraphs from his article, which is very interesting. He writes, back on the street, blinking in the noonday sun, I peek into the brown paper bag they have given me. The study medicine comes in a pair of plastic bottles stuffed with two weeks' worth of glistening amber gel caps. Good name for a band. They look just like regular prescri prescription, <laughs> prescription drugs, but for the sticker that says, Drug limited by federal law to investigational use. That seems a little dramatic for something I can get at my health food store, or by eating however much salmon it would take to provide two grams of omega-3s per day. But under the agreement we've made that they are the doctors, that I am sick, that I must turn myself over to them so they can cure me, the medicine must be treated with the reverence due to a communion wafer. Well, not among us, I guess, but... Not that anyone at Mass General would say so. In fact, they've designed this study to minimize the possibility that something as unscientific as faith or credulity or the mystifications of power could be at work here. The trial is a so-called three-armed study. I have been randomly assigned to one of three groups. One group gets placebos in both bottles. Another group gets... Ah, uh, here we go. Icosapentenoic acid and a placebo. And the third group gets docasahexanoic acid and a placebo. I am, in fact, Latin. Only the anonymous pharmacist laboring in the bowels of Mass General armed with a random number generator and sworn to secrecy knows which group I'm in. The study will then be able to show which of the two omega-3s has more effect and whether either one is more powerful than a placebo. This method is known as the double-blind placebo-controlled design and it provides a way to deal with something that the drug industry would rather forget that in any given clinical trial, especially one 
for a, for a psychiatric drug, people are very likely to respond to the fact that they are being given a pill. Any pill, even one containing nothing but sugar. Which is why the FDA requires all candidate drugs to be tested against placebos to try and separate the medicine from the magic, to see what the drug does when no one is looking. But like a pain-in-the-ass brother-in-law, the placebo effect keeps showing up, curing people at a rate alarming to both regulators and industry executives. In fact, in more than half the clinical trials used to approve the six leading antidepressants, the drugs failed to outperform the placebos. And when it came time to decide on Selexa, an FDA bureaucrat wondered on paper whether the results were too weak to be clinically significant, only to be reminded that all the other antidepressants had been approved on equally weak evidence. And there's a footnote here. He says, the advantage of antidepressants over placebos in those trials was an average of two points on the HAMD, which is a depression. Hamilton is a depression test. A result that could be achieved if the patient ate and slept better. The average improvement in antidepressant clinical trials is just over 10 points, which means, according to Irving Kirsch, a University of Connecticut psychologist, that nearly 80% of the drug effect is actually a placebo effect. Despite the fact that the placebo effect is the indirect subject of virtually every clinical trial, no one really understands how it works. Science, designed to break things down to their particulars, cannot detect something so ineffable, so diffused throughout the encounter between physician and patient. Until there is money to be made in sugar pills, at which point the drug companies are sure to investigate them thoroughly, about the best we can say is that the placebo effect has something to do with the convergence between the doctor's authority and the patient's desire to be well. In 2002, researchers observing, observing the EEGs, electroencephalograms, of patients in an antidepressant versus placebo trial stumbled on a pattern of brain activity common to those subjects who respond to placebos. Drug companies were very interested in this discovery, not because it allowed them to study the placebo effect, but because it might allow them to identify those placebo responders and bounce them out of the trial before it starts. But this relative ignorance doesn't stop doctors, wittingly or not, from using their power as a healing device. For instance, they can reshape you in a way that makes you a good fit for the drugs. That's what those questionnaires with their peculiar way of inventorying personhood do. They alert you to what it is in yourself that is diseased, casting your introspection as, quote, excessive self-criticism, your suspicion of your own base motives as low self-esteem, your wish to nap during the afternoon as excessive daytime sleepiness, your rooting hunger late at night as increased appetite, and so on. So it is a really fascinating article, uh, well worth looking up if you can find it in the archives. It goes through the um, entire process that this guy went through as part of this clinical trial. And uh, he actually uh, reveals at the end, I don't think I'm giving anything away, he reveals at the end that he actually saved um, a part of a pill and had it submitted to an industry. He was in the placebo group, although he was told throughout the entire period that he was getting better, that he must be getting better, that he seemed happier, that he's, you know, he seemed more positive. And um, remember, this is the government, right? This is the government and this is the drug companies. The drug companies uh, for the recent um, old age prescription drug program spent $10 million on lobbying 
right? The, the, the drug companies and the government work very closely together, and I use the word work very loosely, pillage the general population very closely together. Prescribing somebody a pill uh, if they are down is much better than dealing with their problematic thinking, with their false core beliefs, with destructive relationships that they're in, with their personal history, with all of the philosophical challenges that arise and, and psychological and moral challenges that arise from having to deal with people's unhappiness. A wise listener uh, recently wrote, and I read it out in a podcast, about how depression is like holding a brick for days. First couple, The first little bit is not that painful, but uh, then it just gets worse and worse until it becomes unbearable. And I think the metaphor is very apt. When you use your brain in the wrong way, and what I mean by that is when you have uh, had poor thinking, poor mental habits, or negative mental habits inflicted on you through abuse as a child, or through poor examples from your parents and teachers, you end up using your mind in the wrong way. And holding a brick for days is using your muscles in the wrong way. Muscles are designed to contract and then expand. Just holding something rigid is not what they're designed for, certainly not for any lengthy period of time. So, of course, anything is going to cause you pain if you use it wrongly. Right, if you use your foot to try and break concrete, your foot is going to hurt like hell. Because that's not what a foot is for. That's what a forehead is for. So I just think it's very, very important for people who are depressed. And I'm look, I'm no doctor and I'm not a psychologist and so on. But my strong personal experience with this kind of stuff, as well as people that I've talked to, is that you need to figure out what you were taught that is causing you to use your mind incorrectly. Are you focused on the wrong things? Are you focused on shallow things? Are you focused on, quote, success or material gain or personal attractiveness from a merely physical standpoint? Are you calling a form of cowardice courage, which is, while I don't confront people, I, I live and let live, I, uh, I, I don't stand up for things because nothing is really true, and this is not particularly true with people who are in this conversation, but nonetheless... It sort of comes to mind that uh, there's this, this lady on the boards who I did a podcast on recently and she has this theory that you should not get upset with people who do you wrong. And she I sort of asked, and I, I smelled cowardice in this. And I don't mean like she woke up and said, I'm going to be a coward. I really don't. I just meant that she didn't want to confront people because it's scary to do it. And so she defined what she didn't want to do as bravery she defined, rather than deal with the feelings of cowardice, which I certainly have when it comes to confronting people. I don't like it, I think, any more than anybody else does. But I think when you define what you recoil from as courage, that's really, really bad. And so this uh, uh, this lady, was uh, she, she gave an example, which I mentioned in the podcast, about when she was a kid, and this boy punched her in the face, and she didn't fight back, and she she then you know felt bad for him because he got a detention and this and that and the other, right? And so I did this two-part series on female subjugation that I think is really worth uh, having a listen to, and she listened to those while she was on vacation, and she wrote to me that she was enraged at what it is that I had said. That so she was so angry at me that she couldn't sleep, right? Right. And. So, of course, I, I wasn't alarmed, because it's not particularly surprising. But uh, on the board, I said to her, well, I certainly don't want to have done you wrong, and I certainly don't want to have been insulting or put you down or anything like that. So why don't you grab a microphone, and we'll talk about it on uh, on Skype. It's free, 
and so on. And uh, sadly, uh, she never got back. Never came back. She said, oh, I don't have a microphone, and it's a long way to go to Walmart to pick one up, and, and so on, right? And of course, <laughs> when you think about it, right, if she had won a contest for $10,000 that said, all you have to do is get a microphone by tomorrow and call this number, she, she would have done it, right? <laughs> I mean, she would have done it, right? And this is the kind of stuff where uh, it is important to call people on stuff, right? So if somebody says, well, if somebody does you wrong, you should not get angry at them, but you should talk to them. And then, so, so then I do something which she considers really wrong, and she doesn't pick up the microphone and uh, talk to me. Right, so it's just when people put forward these kinds of values, it's really important to challenge them, not because you want to put them down or humiliate them or anything like that. It's as far from it. It's because you want to help them understand that if they really have these values, if we really have these values, we should live these values. And if we don't live these values, we should find other values that are more consistent with how we live. But to live with values on a shelf that you just look at and preen yourself before and say, what a highly valuable and valid and, and person of great integrity I am because I have these values. But when it comes to real life situations, if we act in the complete opposite, that gap is to me depression or it results in depression. And it's, we, we're taught these terrible values. So it's not that it's everybody's fault and I'm not trying to, trying to blame people. It's just that when we talk values we are setting a standard for ourselves. If we talk values and live the opposite, then we're going to be unhappy. We're going to be unhappy. It's like if you eat like a supermodel but train like an athlete. If you live in opposition in terms of cause and effect. If you eat like a supermodel, 1,200, 1,300 calories a day, and you train like an Olympic athlete where you need 3,000, 4,000 calories a day. Well, what's something's going to give, right? You're going to get sick. And it's very hard for... I mean, I mean, I could be being unjust to this woman even now, but I don't think so because she hasn't contacted me, I think, in about a week or two uh, with anything to do with um, having this conversation, Right? But and, and I bet you she doesn't make the connection. So she says, if people do you wrong, you shouldn't get angry at them, but you should talk to them. And then when, she, when I do her wrong, as she says, she then gets angry and doesn't talk to me. Does the exact opposite of what she claims is the good. Exact opposite of what she claims is the good. And then complains about not being happy. Well, of course. And it probably hasn't... I mean, this is not a big elaborate scheme or plan that I put forward in these conversations. It's just what naturally happens. She wants to free herself from false beliefs as much as I want to free her from false beliefs. But it's really scary because those false... It's a lot easier to talk about ethics than it is to do ethics. It's a lot easier to talk about values than to live values. But if you talk about values and live the opposite and don't even notice it, of course you're going to get depressed. Of course you're going to get depressed. Because values are for you then a defense mechanism which means that thinking for you is a form of non-thinking. Thinking for you is a form of anti-thinking. Courage is cowardice. Integrity is hypocrisy. Virtue is vice. And truth is a lie. <clears throat> and of course, it's like working two opposing muscles at the same time. Of course you're going to hurt yourself. Well, that's uh, all for my introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much for your patience.
and um, if you would like to, uh, if you have questions or comments or issues, uh, there's no, uh, you can sort of mention it in the Skype window. Um, I haven't muted anyone. You can also use your press to talk, or you can just, if you have the voice activation system set up, you can just talk, but, uh, all right. Up. Yo. My volume good? Your volume is, uh, is excellent. You couldn't be a more pleasantly expanding guest. Ah, thank you. Um, wow, I can't believe you made that joke. <laughs> really? Uh, what I want to talk you about can't believe it at all? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been listening to your podcast, and it's just zinger after zinger. Not zinger like the family zingers you were talking about. You know, and not zingers you explain like, the way, just more. Right, and not zingers like funny jokes either. I, I appreciate your kindness, but, but <laughs> go on. <laughs> well, if you remember, I'm Chugaris. I hosted you on July 4th on the radio station. You will recall yes. my distinctive and pleasant voice. Yes. Uh, I want to talk. Yeah, I wanted to talk today about drug use. Since I heard somebody come on, come on, uh, on the Gizmocast last uh, last week, and he kind you kind of brought up marijuana and mentioned it as a an instant communalizer and as kind of like a quick solution for some people. So I guess what I want to talk, I wanted to kind of maybe cross-examine you on your position on marijuana because I'm not really clear on it, and I really haven't found a, a direct source where you've explained it in detail. So maybe you can give me a brief summary, and then I could jump in. Oh, <coughs> sorry. When I when I talk about living your values, I really mean for other people. Uh, so I don't really like to be cross-examined on stuff that's difficult for me. So feel free to choose another topic, because this was mostly directed at the young lady on the boards. Not not me. Not me. So go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I will. We might as well dive in now. Uh, as uh, and alienate the last three remaining listeners who like me. So let's uh, let's jump into that, and let me put forward my own sort of personal uh, knowledge and understanding of these things. Uh, I have never uh, smoked marijuana. I have never um, taken uh, opium. Uh, I have never taken ecstasy. I have. Uh, I was an occasional smoker in my youth. Uh, I have uh, a, a, a drink on occasion, and uh, I am a slave to caffeine. Actually, I'm down to one cup a day for the most part, so it's not too bad. Uh, but I don't really take uh, uh, any drugs. I do. Uh, I I do have a sweet tooth, um, but I'm. And that's mostly under control now. I think I've given up chocolate and cookies and all that kind of stuff because you know I'm 40, so that's it for fun. Uh, so, uh, that's sort of my sort of history and, and so on. That having been said, I do appreciate that there's great creativity in, in drugs, right? And some artists that I like uh, have uh, been heavy drug users, right? So, that's, uh, that's certainly there, uh, though that doesn't to me a particularly positive uh, argument for it. I, uh, I loathe drugs. I loathe drugs from the tips of my toes to the remaining fringes of my mop top. Uh, I absolutely hate drugs. I hate drugs. I don't hate drug users. I, I mean, they may be experiencing something I can never understand and so on. But I absolutely, completely, and totally loathe drugs. Uh, loathe recreational drugs, loathe hard drugs, loathe, loathe ecstasy. I loathe LSD and heroin and, and, and uh, weed and uh, all of this other stuff. I absolutely, completely, and totally hate it while absolutely, completely, and totally defending the right of people to do it and that it should be perfectly legal. But I, I really... Ha and of course, right, 
uh, I am a philosopher, and uh, uh, Christina, of course, is a psychological associate, and we're heavily focused on helping people to process reality. And drugs, by definition, interfere with your ability to process reality. There's no such thing as a higher realm. There's no such thing as universal oneness. Although there certainly is, it certainly is the case that drugs will give you that feeling, but it's an illusion. It's an illusion, right? I mean, <laughs> you, can, uh, you can spin around and close your eyes for three minutes and then feel that the world is spinning, but it's not. All that drugs do is mess with your ability to process reality effectively. Now, uh, I'm simply talking about recreational mind-altering drugs here. I'm a big fan of penicillin. <laughs> I'm a big fan of other kinds of drugs, and I occasionally will take an aspirin. Uh, if uh, um, if I have a headache, but uh, the the drugs which people take to make themselves feel better, I think, is incredibly destructive to to themselves in the long run. And of course, this uh, everybody in their dog is going to say to me, "No, it's not." And this is just an opinion. This is just my opinion. I don't have scientific proof. Uh, I have no direct or personal evidence. So I merely put this forward as an opinion, right? So uh, don't. Uh, there's no point telling me that uh, that you 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 have found drugs to be personally wonderful and enlightening, and you have. I, nonetheless, they're still messing with your capacity to process reality, and uh, what they're doing is simply messing up with the biochemistry of your brain. They are introducing things, and, and look, I'm not talking about you know people who smoke marijuana because they have to deal with the nausea uh, that is brought upon by certain kinds of radiation treatment for cancer i'm not talking about it as or people who take marijuana or smoke marijuana because it helps them with glaucoma and thing i'm not talking about it as a medicinal use i'm talking about it as a recreational drug i think that the illusion that screwing with your system and drugs are definitely an interference with the system I think the illusion that there's anything that, that's not just a waste of time and life and brain uh, in that, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a terrible illusion. And I think people waste a lot of their time and lives getting stoned. And stoned people are kind of stupid, right? <laughs> you know, technically, they're like drunk people. And then, of course, everyone's going to say, well, but they're not as bad as alcohol. And look, I hate alcohol as well. Right? I hate people who use alcohol to, 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 as a crutch right? to deal with social situations, to lower inhibitions, to deal with anxiety. I hate self-medication of any kind because you should and must, to live with integrity, confront your demons, not narcotize them in one form or another. Novocaine I'm a big fan of, uh, but only for breakfast. So, so yeah, I think that the drugs are, are very bad. Uh, I, if I could will them off the planet, I would. If I could get every drug user in the world who was using mind-altering recreational drugs to stop, I think that the world would be a much happier and better place. I can't believe parents do it. Um, and uh, now you can flame away. That's my particular opinion. Oh, I'm, I don't really want to flame. I, I mean, from what it sounds like, you're attacking the right kinds of things, which is, you know, the drug is a crutch, you know, the, uh, the use of it, you know, to in social situations, the use of it to elude reality. But you, know, you mentioned earlier that a lot of great art and a lot of music has been made under the influence of drugs. What is the effect of those drugs that have allowed those forms to be created? I mean, is it simply that somebody perceived an illusion of the oneness of the universe and made good art? I mean, isn't the definition of good art that which reflects reality accurately? 
Well, I don't. I mean, I'm, the, the one that pops to mind is uh, you know the the rock opera bit Bohemian Rhapsody, which Freddie Mercury composed after becoming uh, a big fan of of cocaine, which he was on for about ten years. Um, I think I think as a disinhibitor, of course, uh, it, it drugs allow people to get more in touch with their creative side, right? Because it, it lowers the super. A lot of drugs will lower the superego. So the self-critical faculty, <clears throat> as an artist myself, I know that it is the self-critical faculty that is is the most dangerous inhibitor to artistic creation. Right? You just you just have to blindly and sometimes stupidly and sometimes with no evidence believe that you have something of value to say. You have to believe that you're a good artist often before you become a good artist. And I think that drugs cause a disinhibition. Uh, or lower the inhibitions of that critical voice that we all have in our heads and allow people to take many more risks than they would have otherwise and through those risks people can then create some great stuff. Unfortunately the people who take a lot of drugs don't tend to have very successful personal relationships so while I think it's great that art has come out of it um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the art could have come out of it through psychotherapy Right through the disinhibition that comes from self-acceptance and wisdom and self-knowledge, which would have been a more sustainable lifestyle for these people. So the art that comes out of it uh, is like it's like the poetry that comes out of a war. Right? I mean, we don't say that the war uh, that the poetry justifies the war, but uh, it's not a bad thing to have. Okay, you also mentioned the the, the illusionary factor, but. Uh Something I've noticed, I mean, something I've experienced a lot in philosophy is that I'll come across two philosophers who will say two, the same exact thing in two distinct while I realize that this is, what, this is what's going on, this is exactly the effect. So uh, I think there's a direct connection between our perceptual faculties and, you know, how we tend to view reality um, or how we tend to cut up reality and, and, and uh, how we chop the pizza, I guess, or chop the onion or, or however you want to call it. So... Uh, Isolating these negative effects, these these this use, yeah. these, use uh, these these poor uses that you've just uh, cited. I mean, don't you think that there's some sort of value to the, uh, I guess, different cuts of perception you receive under under the influence of certain kinds of drugs? Well, but when you when you uh, are on LSD, right? So I remember talking to a guy who took LSD, and he said that he looked up, and the moon was dripping flame. Right now, unless NASA missed something, <laughs> right? It, it's not that you're perceiving reality differently; you are perceiving reality incorrectly. Right? And I, I well, don't the think thing that is, there's the any value. I don't think there's any philosophical value in perceiving reality incorrectly other than as a negative example, right? Like, so you say, how is it that we know the difference between our dreaming and our waking state? Well, because dream states contradict the natures and properties of reality that we're perfectly aware of when we wake up. So, uh, but you don't have to take drugs to know what it's like to experience uh, non-reality because that happens for us every single night when we sleep. Right, so you don't have to take drugs to know the difference between an imagined reality and, uh, you know, quote regular reality. Well, it's not. I wouldn't say that it's it's an experience of uh, a counterfactual reality. But I mean, in our dreams, the forms we experience in those are products of what we actually experience in reality. And this is something that Descartes observed. You know, so it's not exactly new. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that. There are some drugs that put you in a, stri a strictly hallucinatory state, and yeah, and, and some of the, most of the stuff that comes out of those drug experiences are, are pointless. And I'm not really defending the use of you know extreme hard drugs, but I'm I'm just saying that there is some sort of perception, or not perceptual value, but rather um, 
I guess, conceptual value in the types of byproducts of existing concepts that you receive when you're under the influence of these drugs. You know, when you, when you come home from a hard day of work, you'll sit in the bathtub or something, and there'll be, a, you know, some steam, and you put on the aromatherapy, right? To me, I don't see a distinction between that kind of activity, which gives you, let's say, a mildly uh, uh, euphoristic effect. There's no difference between that and the use of drugs. Well, sure there is. Well, sure there is. I mean, because in the one situation, like meditation can help people to relax and so on. So meditation will release endorphins and exercise, I know, of course, will release endorphins as well. But this is your body's natural production, right? That's very different from introducing foreign substances that, that simulate, right, that, that issue, right? Uh... I, I guess in this in this regard, I, I still I still don't see a difference because I mean you, you're introducing an external stimuli, right? Uh, if that stimuli is achieved via I don't know, let's say exposure to flashing lights as opposed to exposure to a chemical. In your well, no, no, no. Look, look. I mean, no, 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 there, no, look, look. there's a difference between a voice in your head and a phone a call, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, you could say that. I could say that, or there is a difference. There is a difference, but I think there's a sort, there's a sort of a disanalogy because I, maybe the, the question at hand is uh, you're talking about our body's natural state, our, na our body's natural responses. Uh, if you create external stimuli to manipulate your body's responses, how is that difference? I mean, how is that different in principle than it, uh, introducing a new chemical? Uh, it's, I mean, well, unless you have a scientific. Sorry, interrupt. But the reason that I asked you if there was a difference between um, a voice in your head and a phone call is that a voice in your head is internal stimuli. So, you know, when you have these debates with yourself, should I or shouldn't I, or whatever, uh, should the donation to FDR be one kidney, a firstborn, or 500 bucks, the latter. Then, I mean, when you have those debates, then uh, those are voices in your head, and, and we're aware of that, and that's an internally generated state. But when we pick up the phone and we put the phone to our ear and somebody else is talking to our mind, that is something that is being introduced to our system from the outside, right? That is audit <laughs> auditory reality that is being introduced into our system from the outside. There's a, there's a difference, fundamentally, between causing yourself to relax from a psychological standpoint and then finding that your fight and flight mechanism relaxes and you're pumping out less adrenaline and you, your adrenal glands are getting less exhausted and so on, right? There's a difference between learning how to relax yourself and calm your system down, which is all an internally generated state, and introducing chemicals that directly affect your sense perceptions and reality from the outside. I mean, there's just you, your natural production... It's the difference between your body producing blood and doing blood boosting, like injecting blood from other people to get better performance. There's a difference between working out and gaining strength and then pumping, like taking steroids, uh, injecting steroids and gaining strength, right? I guess it's just the intentionality of your... I mean, you, you turn the lights low, let's say, to relax, or, um, you know, you, you change... You, if you manipulate your environment heavily enough, uh, it just seems like... There's, a, there's the same level of intentionality and direct effect that there are with drugs, which is why the government, you know, did all these tests, you know, both with drugs and then also with all types of other stimulus. Like, that's why the interrogators will shine a light in your face, you know, because it makes you more likely to tell the truth. So I guess I'm just seeing that there's a... that it's still physical manipulation no matter which way you look at it. It just happens no, to no, be no, that no, the direct... Look, I mean, I, no, no, no. With all due respect, I have to completely disagree with you, and this is not... This, this we're not in the realm of opinion anymore, right? Because we have, we have objective fact to appeal to. Um, so, for instance, 
uh, if getting into a hot bath and doing all that uh, metrosexual stuff you were talking about, not that there's anything wrong with that, I've been known to take a relaxing bath myself, but if you could get the same effects from having a warm bath that pot gives you, tell me this, why is there pot? Why would people pay 30, 40, 50 bucks for marijuana if you could get exactly the same effect from a warm bath? If you could manipulate yourself into, into having the same effects as a drug, I guarantee you the drugs would not exist. Well, maybe they require a different level of input, a different level of... Uh, like maybe it'll take weeks or months of discipline and meditation to achieve I don't know, centeredness. I mean, I'm just, I'm just making this up. But uh, maybe it would take the same amount, uh, much more, much more work than it would to simply go buy a dime bag off the street. Oh, I agree with you completely. I agree with you completely. That's why I hate drugs. Because people, if they are if they're anxious, if they have problems, if they're ill at ease with themselves, if they have anxieties, if they have phobias, if they have a lack of ability to relax and enjoy themselves, they should deal with that at a spiritual, psychological, philosophical level. They should deal with that, with those negative thoughts that, that are going on. You don't just firebomb aspects of your personality out of the way because they're inconvenient. I'm not saying you suggest that, but you don't just say, well, in order to feel happy, I'm going to take a drug, and then say that that is a good and wise and, and productive decision. It's not. Right. In that regard, I don't disagree with you at all. Okay, but now I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you did cite, I guess, some sort of tangentially positive effects of drugs. Let's say somebody does have these things under control. Let's say they don't, they're not firebombing their, uh, their, their issues out of the way, you know. They know how to relax. They know, they know how to know, etc. I mean, is it justifiable? I mean, is it, is it, can this person justify to himself the use of drugs? I, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, of course, you can do anything you want. You justify whatever you want. I don't think that there is a reasonable justification for using drugs. And and I, that's simply that's partly because they're illegal. I mean, at a sort of functional level, I don't mean at a sort of fundamental level, but at a functional level, right? I mean, dr bad stuff can end up into drug in drugs, right? You don't know what the heck's in there. It's not it's not like labs have certified it because it's illegal. It's expensive. Uh, it's illegal. Uh, and of course, the risks of getting caught, the risks of going to jail, and all these kinds of things. The fact that people are still willing to spend all of this money, still willing to risk putting unknown substances with unknown quality controls into their body. That indicates to me that anybody who takes drugs is not processing decision-making, let alone being thrown in jail, ending up with a permanent criminal record, which is quite a hamperance in the modern economy. Not to mention supporting the criminal underworld. Right? I support the legalization of drugs, but anybody who thinks that uh, drug runners in the modern world are really great people, <laughs> you know, it's it's terrible. I mean, the the economy that you're supporting when you buy drugs is absolutely wretched and brutal. It exploits children. It exploits women. Uh, it supports tyrannical foreign governments. The proceeds are used to to buy weapons, fund terrorism. Uh, I mean, so you put all of this together, and people throw all of that out of the window because they want a high. That says to me that there's not a sensible way to self-justify the taking of drugs. Okay, well, to, to then drop the context of the current 
black market economy, let's say you grew it in your own house or you produced it in your own house. But it's uh, still illegal, right? You could still go to jail. Like, you could still go to jail, right? That's why I say I can't believe that parents smoke pot, right? Because what are they going to do if they go to jail? It's incredibly irresponsible. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because it's incredibly irresponsible with regard to their children and even themselves to some degree. But uh, sure. beyond that, I mean, isolating those factors. Let's say you're rich and you know that you have, you know that you have the ability to avoid a jail sentence and you can throw it in your own house and you're not supporting the black market. What then? Well, what I'm, I'm, just, I'm saying, then, is so sure, well, we, we could go one step further, right, and say that, that what about uh, in, in, in an anarcho-capitalist society where drugs are perfectly legal and there's no black market that you're funding, I mean, and, and it's perfectly safe, and I'm perfectly willing to go all that way, right, because people are going to say, well, what you're citing is an example of a status society, which I fully agree with. So let's go, let's move to Ankapistan. We'll go forward 143 years until the Freedom Aid Radio Society has been implemented. Okay. And we can say that uh, it's perfectly legal, it's perfectly Both safe. Are Sorry? Okay. It's perfectly, uh, 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 chuck my dick. Oh my god. Please spawn. Oh, uh, spawn. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> you guys are on drugs. Uh, I think I oh, just, yeah. just muted that person who's making all that noise. Uh, uh, j j just, just suck my dick. Uh. Oh, okay. Uh, hey, Diddy. Uh, sorry, uh, that's not something we can really do on the air. Um, so, uh, yeah, so if we can go forward 143 years and we can talk about uh, the... Um, uh, the situation where it's all legal and so on. Uh, still, what you're doing is you're voluntarily introducing substances into your body which mess with your sense of reality and our brain and uh, our bodies are specifically designed to interact productively and positively with reality. And you've, t you've made that choice. Rather than to deal with whatever is, giving, is creating anxiety for you, or even if you just say, well, I only take drugs to achieve more happiness, well, What's wrong with achieving more happiness through more virtue? Right? Virtue is what makes us happy. Courage, integrity, yeah. honesty. That's what makes us happy. So if people just say, well, I could either live a better life, be, be more virtuous and have more courage, or what I can do is I can, uh, I can just inject some biochemical substance into my body and get the same. I mean, it's just... You know, that's like saying... Um, no, no woman will love me, but if I slip some drug into her drink, then she'll think I'm great. It's just not, it's not a productive place. What you want to do is you want to be someone that a good woman will love. You don't want to just pick some woman and drug her and then think that's love. And in the same way, you want to look into your mirror and say, I am a person that I'm happy to be and respect being, and I'm happy uh, to do what I'm doing, and I, I'm, I'm proud of what it is that I do. Not uh, drug yourself into feeling good. It just it just seems like that that it's not like they're uh, if you drug if you take drugs that you can't necessarily wake up in the morning you know without being high and not look in the mirror and feel the same way I, and I guess that's the pro it, it, I think it's kind of like what you're saying almost implies that if you take drugs there's automatically a deficiency in your regular life. Well, there's no question of that. I mean, th that's just logical, right? And I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to say that you're not being logical, but this is just my perspective. There's absolutely no question that uh, if I go for a raise in my job, that I want more money. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, that's fair. And if I'm perfectly satisfied with the amount of money that I'm making, then would I go for a raise? I mean, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't, right? So if I'm perfectly happy... Well, I mean, you all actually... No, no, no. I'm, just I'm sorry, there's a difference between satisfaction... I'm no, saying there's a difference between satisfaction and optimization. Oh, perfectly no, happy, if, if Olin, perfectly, of course not, if because... I'm sorry, that's just whack loads of echo. Do you have mic and speakers running at the same time? Oh, yeah, sorry. Let me just move my speakers. Yeah, switch the headphones. That'll, uh, that'll save. But um, uh, if I'm perfectly happy with the amount of money that I'm making, then I will not ask for a raise. And if I am not happy with the amount of money that I'm making, and I want more money, then I will ask for a raise. And so, logically, if someone is taking drugs they are immediately saying, I am not satisfied with me in my natural state. And I wish to improve my experience of myself and of the world, but primarily of myself. So there's no question that if somebody is taking a drug, they are attempting to remedy a deficiency in their life. I mean, in the same way that if I go out and buy an MP3 player, it's because... I want to remedy a deficiency in my life, which is that I don't have an MP3 player, if that makes sense. Did we lose him? I do not see him. Oh, we're good. We're good. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so if somebody's taking a drug, without a doubt, they're attempting to remedy a deficiency through biochemical means. Just give me a moment here. Sorry. Sorry, you just uh, lighten up. Is that... Don't bogart that man! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to try to avoid giving dead air here. So. Sorry. Eventually voice somebody wrote, Steph's voice will permanently be the voice in our heads. Absolutely. Look, I'm just, I'll keep doing this until you come up with a... The dead air is, 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 is uh, even better than that, so... Well, speaking of the spawn in, in the head, uh, after listening to so many podcasts in my car, it's almost like when I sit in my car, I automatically hear your voice. I think that officially now I'm I think Kit. That officially now. <laughs> you know from Knight Rider, the car that spoke to people? Oh, right. <laughs> your door is ajar. No, no, it's not. It's a door. Anyway, go on. Another thing right there. Um, so, your your logical argument seems very tightly knit, and uh, and it makes sense. I mean, obviously, it's tightly knit because you know you wouldn't put out an argument if it wasn't or if it weren't tightly knit. Uh, I like to think of it as sooner or later, I one of my arguments has to be tightly knit. This just happens to be the one. So go on. Right. So, so I think maybe our our center of dispute here lies in the fact that. Uh, drugs are a distinctly separate kind of entity than any other, a distinctly separate kind of uh, activity or entity than any other, anything else that you would consider to be a valid means of improving happiness in your life. 
Well, I mean, there's, right. there's uh, manipulation. Sorry, there's there's manipulations of uh, of biochemical states that can occur from other things, right? So a lot of people take comfort in food, right? So a lot of people, when they're anxious or upset or stressed, a little bit more on the feminine side of things, but certainly not in my household. But um, that uh, uh, people take enormous comfort in food, and they use the the sort of drugs that the body releases upon the reception of certain kinds of sugary or salty or fatty foods. That is how they manage their moods. And uh, so, I mean, I'm not just talking about pot here. I mean, I'm talking about any time that you manipulate your internal state by introducing foreign substances into your body. Um, so, uh, that that's something that I think, uh, I guess that could also be women sleeping around. But anyway, uh, there is, it's, it's, to me, it's not just drugs. I mean, it's, it, it's small. People also do this with, with cults or with collectives, right? Or, or what they do is they'll join a group for the high of getting along with everyone and getting the approval of everyone. And that can also happen in Scientology and Christianity and, is, and, and, and Islamic worlds and so on. So um, that's a little bit different because that is a little bit more like taking the bath. But um, for me, if you're not happy, if there's a deficiency in your experience with yourself, you should figure out whether that's coming from something you should improve in yourself, in which case drugs is, is wallpapering over a big hole in the wall, or you should say, well, the reason that I'm not happy with myself is because I have unrealistic expectations, right? So if I said, if Free Domain Radio, after the first three months of me working on it full-time, if I don't have 500 um, radio stations broadcasting my show, then I'm a complete and total failure, right? Well, then, of course, I'm going to feel unhappy. But if I take drugs, I'm not dealing with the core problem. Or even if I eat food, I'm not dealing with the core problem, which is my real my expectations are unrealistic, that I've got expectations which are a form of self-abuse. And I'm attempting to control something that I can't control and all this and that, right? So <coughs> we had a guy on the board recently who was saying that although he drinks at times to excess and gets drunk, there's no way he's giving up beer because just because his wife tells him to. Well, I, you know, I hate that kind of stuff, frankly. Uh, you know, just <laughs> don't drink, you know, like just stop. I mean, I'm not talking about a glass of wine at dinner or anything like that. I'm talking about people who get drunk. And of course, this is common among, among younger people as well, right? So uh, it's just, don't do that, right? D deal with your issues like a man. Deal with your issues like an adult. Don't just sort of run off into the arms of, of some biochemical nonsense and claim that you solved a problem. I mean, I don't disagree with any of that. So uh, actually, another example I wanted to bring up uh, is exercise. A lot of people tend to abuse that too and become, you know, and uh, so forth because it releases a lot of endorphins and, and and stuff. So I guess I guess my point in bringing up exercise is that it can be pretty hard to distinguish when you're doing it for a perfectly valid reason or, or simply doing it because of the, uh, the happiness release. And I, I think maybe if I can try to boil down your conclusion, what you should be getting high on, you know, what you'd be, you should be getting happy on is your own psychological satisfaction of, you know, gaining knowledge or doing the right thing. Right. I mean, have you ever Naturally. been in one of these debates where you're debating with someone and it's just like, it doesn't, I'm just using an example that, that we're probably all more familiar with. So you're debating with someone and you're just thrilled and it's ha you're having a great time and it, they're intellectually challenging and so on. Right. Like I assume that you're enjoying this debate. I can tell you that I certainly am. Well, that's, that's a real pleasure. So when I look back over the last 10 minutes of my life, right, of having this conversation with you, um, watching Christina shoot up. Um, <laughs> when I look back on, on, on this last ten minutes, um, that's just to stay awake, right? I mean, <laughs> but 
I don't look upon these last 10 minutes of you and say something was missing right I was not happy I was not fulfilled I was not excited I was like I don't look back on the last 10 minutes of our conversation and say something is missing right something is missing something something's not right something something's not working something's not I'm not fulfilled I'm I'm, uh, I'm tense I'm upset I'm unhappy something's missing I could be happier and I don't know how right I don't look I mean to me the last 10 minutes I'm perfectly content I wouldn't want to go back and change a thing right so uh, that's sort of how you know uh, when you're sort of happy and content with yourself and I'm not saying I spend 24 hours a day seven days a week in that state but uh, I feel that way uh, the majority of the time certainly the probably 75 to 80 percent of the time uh, that I'm uh, sorry in this part the TeamSpeak server shut down just a little bit but we pick up just a second later uh, so if if I'm saying that something is missing from my life, then I'm going to want to fill that, right? I'm going to want to change that. And so uh, I say for the last 10 minutes that I was debating with uh, Chugaris, I don't look back upon those and say, something's missing, I should have done something differently, I should have been doing something else, I wish I'd been eating a peach. or You know, like uh, that was a perfectly satisfying interaction for me. And when you get those kinds of interactions with people, when you, uh, oh, you know what? Let me be even more annoying here. What is our... Oh, good. We're on the right codec. Um, sorry, technical. Uh, and and that's what you should aim your life towards, right? So that you're living in that situation where you are getting as much satisfaction as you can imagine from as much time as you can. And that takes a, a fair amount of engineering and integrity and, for me, 25 years of patience and work. But uh, that's what you should aim at, right? And if you take the shortcut, if you take the short circuit, to me... Going to drugs, uh, sorry, using drugs is like going to, prostit to a prostitute instead of having somebody love you, right? You're just, you're just getting the physical effects of virtue, which is happiness and well-being or joy or whatever. You're not actually getting the right cause. And it becomes a, uh, an addiction because when you make choices to adjust your biochemistry rather than to achieve real joy, happiness, security, self-esteem, peace of mind, and virtue, if you make that choice, you're basically saying, I can't get it by being virtuous. I can't get happiness by being virtuous. And when you make that choice, it lowers your self-esteem. If you say, I can't conceivably get a woman to love me, so I'm going to go to a prostitute. Well that very action says you've just confirmed the diagnosis, right? It just makes it worse and worse, and that's why people have a tough time letting go of those things. So. All right, sorry about that. Uh, I'm back. I just had to come back in as admin. So, all right, that's, uh, that's my sum up of the drug position. I was going to do a series of podcasts on it, but why not? Listeners are king. So if that's what we wish to talk about, that's what we shall talk about. I just know that there are people who, like, there are people who are attracted to the anarchist loosey-goosey philosophy because they dislike discipline, right? And the anarchism for them is a form of rebellion against authority and so on. But, of course, the reality is that it is, it is the status society that lacks discipline, right? The status society lacks uh, discipline, integrity, and reality because you can, you know, if you, if you fail, you just go on welfare, right? I mean, if, if you, uh, if you uh, decide not to support your kids, other people have to take care of it, right? The anarchist society is one that is fundamentally, in a sense, founded on discipline and personal responsibility because other people are never forced to support you in the way that they are and to, to support your decisions in the way that they are in a status society. 
Because in a state of society, everyone's Lindsay Lohan <laughs> to some degree, right? There are no consequences for their decisions, particularly. Uh, where, you know, she gets caught uh, driving like a, a mad witch uh, with cocaine and, and she gets, what, like a day or two in jail? I mean, it's all nonsense, right? So, um, uh, but but so the people who are drawn towards anarchism because they think it's loosey-goosey and anything goes are really not, uh, I don't think, processing the, the reality of it particularly uh, well. I think that they're sort of missing the boat. So that's sort of my other uh, thing that I think is important when it comes to thinking about... Um, uh, anarchy and, and responsibility and, and drugs and so on. All right. Well, I think we have uh, put just enough out there to uh, piss off everybody uh, who is uh, uh, into recreational drugs. Uh, so perhaps uh, we could uh, start with a new topic and offend uh, some other people. Speak now. Speak now. Mothers. Mother, will they help you drop the bomb? Mother's going to make all of your nightmares come true. All right. If you'd like to talk about mothers, we can certainly talk about mothers. But there's not much point me talking about mothers, because I think people have heard about mine, perhaps sometimes, even more than they would think. If you could come up with questions, uh, we have been on the show for about an hour. You know the questions are coming, and it sure does help me, because then I don't have to edit out all the dead air later. So if you could rouse yourself to come up with a question or two, that would be most excellent. It can't be surprised that I'm asking for them. <laughs> I mean, you know that how these shows work, right? By the way, yeah. thanks for the discussion, Stefan. Oh, thank you. It was really great. I, uh, I am glad that you brought it up. I guess we might as well get this flame war out of the way. Okay, um, well, I guess if you uh, somebody says here, I want to talk, but I have thin walls, my brother would hear everything. Um, do you not, uh, can you not uh, go into an eider down? I mean, seriously, can you not take stuff into a pillow? Uh, like put a pillow over your head and eider down? Can you not go in the closet and cover yourself in clothing? Like there's lots of ways to muffle the sound, right? And, uh, I, you know, I can always volume normalize as I generally do, so whispers are fine as well, so um, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Right. Okay. Well, no problem. I mean, if we don't have uh, if we don't have any other topics, uh, I don't want to. I mean, I've done a, another podcast today, which you might want to listen to, eight fifty six. So, uh, which was oh, okay, sure. Go ahead. We have somebody who'd like to talk. Hey, Steph. Hi. Oh, sorry. I thought you might have more to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had actually a pretty interesting. Uh, kind sorry, of a follow-up yeah, from, uh, from the last week. Okay, sorry. Uh, can you just uh, start again? We had a, a bit of a cutout of audio. I'm not sure why. Go ahead. Um, kind of a follow-up of last week's conversation with other about the... Oh, sorry, Steve, I'm going to have to interrupt you again. Uh, what's happening is your voice is cutting in and out. That may be because you have voice activation and you, you may have uh, not have, uh, have it set high enough. Can you just click on Settings, Sound, Input, Output, and the voice activation level, you might want to bring it down, or ideally if you put the uh, click the Push to Talk, right? So Voice Activation, bring it down to Whisper. Or if you can click on push to talk and use the control key when you want to talk that way, uh, because right now I'm only getting every second or third word, which won't be uh, enough. Is that better? Uh, yeah. So I have to hit the control control key when I want to talk. Or? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. Okay. 
Um, okay, just, this is, a, I guess, a follow-up conversation um, from last week's conversation. And uh, she realized, I suppose, that she was being pretty irrational and uh, tried to apologize and, I don't know, I just didn't really respond very, very much. And uh, then she asked me, you know, what what was wrong and stuff like that. I forgot exactly what question she posed, but I, I basically spilled a lot of what I had been, I guess, a lot of problems I've had with the relationship for the past 15 years. Like, uh, <laughs> like the fact that, you know, the physical abuse and uh, humiliation, that sort of thing. Right. She, she was shocked, absolutely shocked. Sorry, she was shocked that you remembered? She was shocked that you didn't like being physically abused? Or she was shocked that you brought it up? Or, like, what was she shocked about? That I was so capable of speaking my mind exactly how I felt. I mean, I think I, I started off by saying uh, that I, just, I didn't feel like I could ever be authentic around her. You know, and that I was always forced to be happy and, you know, pretend to only have positive emotions and, you know, that sort of thing. And now, was she surprised that you experienced that because she didn't believe it was true? Or was she surprised that you expressed it and she did think it was true? Oh, I think, I think she thought it was true. She thought it was true? Like, she thought it was true like it was your experience? Or she thought it was true like she did that to you? Uh, both. Both. Uh, she was, I mean, just surprised that I was able to, I guess, capable of telling that to her. Right, and look, I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, what you did is fantastic, like, all all, all hail, all bow, bow down before him. Uh, but, but I'm just trying to understand what it is that your mother accepted through that conversation. So you told her, I don't, you know, the physical abuse was bad and I don't feel I can ever be authentic. And she, did she say, yes, the physical abuse was bad and yes, I have forced you to never be authentic or I have bullied you every time you've been honest or like, what is it that she said that um, can help me to understand what her, her understanding was of what you said? She listened for about five minutes straight and... Then she said something to the effect of, I don't ever have to, like, forgive her. She would understand. So she says that she would understand if you never forgave her. Yeah, basically. And what do you think, what, what do you think she meant by that? It's hard to say. It's hard to say it was, uh... She's never really said anything like that to me before. What was your emotional experience? How did you feel when she said that? I don't know. I, uh, I felt, you know, before I told her all that, I felt really anxious about, sure. you know. And uh, I also felt a little bit cornered by the conversation as a whole, but I felt good getting it out there. I was, I was kind of surprised by her response that she didn't, start, you know, blaming me for having these feelings. That was almost what I expected. So I was surprised at least. 
Well, I, I can, sorry, you just cut out at the end there. I, I think that the, the credit can accrue a little bit to this conversation, right? Uh, people who, um, uh, because you, you have a fair amount of certainty that you have inculcated in yourself about your experiences based on this conversation, so people who are bullies or who are violent towards children are very sensitive to what they can get away with. It's not easy to abuse a child in the midst of a relatively open society for many years and get away with it. So you've got to think of them like they're these expert fish, right? They can they can just amazingly know when to give a little, when to yank in the rod. They're like the old man in the sea. They're like these expert fishermen. So the reason that your mother responded the way that she did was that she knew that to blame you would not work. And I think that's credit to you and credit to this conversation to some degree. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I. It's still hard for me to see her as being that good at it, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think that that's true. All right, so how did you feel when she said, I wouldn't blame you if you never forgave me? I felt she was being authentic, but and I think that there was a degree of a degree of closure. I mean, I, I still I still want to leave. Okay, so do you think that it's ever possible that you can forgive your mother for the emotional and physical abuse you suffered at her hands for many years? No. Okay, so if your mother is genuine about what she said, then if you go up to her tomorrow and you say, Mom, I've thought it over. I have decided that I can never forgive you. I really appreciate that you've said that you will perfectly well accept it if I don't, so I'm going to bid you, bid you farewell for the rest of my life. <laughs> that scares me. Well, sure, um, but what would her reaction be? I don't know. I, I was surprised sure enough you know. by this reaction. I, lo I love it. You know, this is great. And I do appreciate that it's, it's a hard conversation to have. But it's, I still love it that people tell me that they don't know about their parents. So, no, of course you know. Otherwise, you wouldn't be scared. First yeah. thing you told me was you're scared, right? So you know exactly how she's going to react. That's a good point. <laughs> I don't consciously know. But you know that you'd be scared, right? So what would you be scared of? Her disapproval, probably. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Her disapproval, probably. Well, yes, but... Uh, uh, among do, do other things. That, do, you think that do you think that you're such a, a coward that uh, mere disapproval makes you frightened? It doesn't from most people now. Right, right. I, I don't think you're a coward at all. I think you're incredibly brave, right? And I'm nothing but respect for what you've done with your mom. So when you say to me that I'm scared of disapproval, that's incongruous to me, right? It'd be like Mike Tyson saying, I'm scared that, that Gary Coleman's going to beat me up. So when you think about saying to your mom, well, I appreciate that you said that you will totally understand if I never forgive you. I never can forgive you. I never will forgive you. I think it would be perfectly wrong 
to forgive anybody who committed such crimes against a child. I won't turn you in, I won't throw you in jail, but I never want to see you again for the rest of my life. Bye-bye. Right? The emotional reaction that sits in you immediately comes from your correct assessment of the situation. So when you hear me say those words, what do you picture in your mom? Rage. Go on. Um, I don't know. I I don't know how much what else I picture. I I think that she would be sad also, but definitely angry. Right. Okay. So earlier you said to me, and again I'm just nitpicking because this is just minor corrections on a, a magnificent job. But you said to me that you thought she was authentic when she said to you that she'd be perfectly and she would perfectly well understand if you never forgave her, right? I did say that. And I'm not, this is what you thought. I mean, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just pointing out that if I say to my employee, "I'm perfectly content if you quit." And then they say, I quit. And then I assault them. Might it not be... <laughs> might my earlier statements not be cast in doubt somewhat about me being perfectly fine if they quit? Definitely. Right, so I think from this standpoint, and this is, this is just combing over, right? Let me tell you something that you, you know unconsciously, but, but it's hard for you to process consciously. If you have spent year upon year upon year abusing a helpless little boy you can never ever be authentic you can never ever be honest you can never ever be intimate you can never ever treat anybody with concern, empathy, care, respect, or love. There is a price to these crimes that is bottomless. When you said to me that my mother was authentic, it was perfectly clear to me, and in time it will be perfectly clear to you, that you were expressing your mother's perspective, not yours. Because there's no possibility that your mother can ever tell the truth with you, to you, or deal with you in a direct manner. Because we have to assume that there's a hierarchy of crime, and that beating a helpless child is quite a bit worse than merely lying. Right? We don't throw people in jail for lying. We damn well should throw them in jail for beating children. And so, if sure. your mother is willing to do a crime like beat you up for years... Is she really going to say, well, but I don't want to tell a lie? No, no. Of course not. Of course not. How should I, uh... How should I deal with those situations when that, when that sort of stuff happens? Deal with, uh, do you mean deal with yourself or deal with your mom? Deal with that conversation if it if a conversation like this comes. Well, um, because th there are two aspects. This is fairly advanced, but you're cruising along very well. So there are two aspects to to any interaction when you talk about dealing with things. The first thing is your interaction with yourself, and the second thing is your interaction with the other person. Right. 
So when you're talking about these things with your mom, there's your experience of it, right? And you could choose, if you're getting yelled at by your mom, to just nod and say, okay, that's fine, I understand, yes, I'm sorry, blah, 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 you're so right, you're so absolutely, completely and totally right, you couldn't be more right, I'm going to build a monument to you of pure rightness, you are the platonic form of perfection, and you're right. And you can say all of that, right? And that's appeasing... That sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, I mean, we've all gone through that. I mean, and you've got these kinds of moms and dads. Um, you know, uh, can I blend into the wallpaper more so that I don't exist and offend your sensibilities and blah, 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 right? So that's uh, dealing with the other person. Uh, and it can be the most effective way of dealing with someone, right? However, then what you have to do is you have to deal with your own experience of that person, right? You have to deal with your own experience of that person afterwards, right? So in this conversation with your mom, you did great. You mean you told the truth and this and that and the other, right? But then what you need to do is you need to sit down and say, okay, what was my experience of that conversation in the context of my entire history with this woman? Right? So she said, well, she would perfectly well understand if I never forgave her. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that she recognized that she did wrong but never brought it up? Well, what does that mean? If she's known all this time that she's been doing wrong, but she's never brought it up, what does that mean? If you'd never brought it up, would she ever have brought it up? Like, there's a great difference between confessing and being caught, right? You caught her. Oh, she didn't yeah. confess. She's just hoping and, to get uh, away with it. So there's no real regret there. It's like, oh, honey, you caught me sleeping around. Hey, I'm sorry, you know. Hey, I, I didn't mean to hurt you, right? Well, would you have told me if I hadn't caught you? Right, this is just another strategy. You can compare all of this kind of stuff, and you know all of this stuff in your heart of hearts, right? So the important thing is not to figure out how to control your mom or deal with your mom, but how to deal with yourself in relation to your mom, right? That's the great challenge. So how's it been for you? in the week since you've had this conversation with her. Well, sorry, was it a week or shorter? This conversation, two days, but it was follow-up of a conversation a week ago that we talked about. So what's, what's, what's different in the last two days between you and your mom? <sighs> she seems to feel that we've made a lot of progress with our relationship. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, oh God. Oh, okay, please go on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's not funny at all. But she, so she seems to feel that you've made a lot of progress with your relationship, does she? Okay, go on. Uh, that would I'm be not her laughing at you. I'm yes. not laughing at you. I'm sorry. Go on. Um, with what? Um, how the relationship's different? Right. Uh, on any fundamental level, I don't, I don't think that it is. She's been just, uh, I think she's been kind of <laughs> now she's being extremely careful, but I don't think it's for the right reasons, like you said. Yeah, because she's caught, right? Yeah, yeah, she, uh, she knows where I've been, how I've been feeling for the past, you know, five years. It's she, uh, sensitive, she's being more sensitive to, uh, I guess, the fact that I 
am aware of what's going on. And what does that mean? Like, like, what would be the ideal response for you from your mom? What, what, what would that mean to you? For like, what, what would she do uh, to be the perfect mom? I mean, obviously, this is a stretch, but what would be the ideal response in that situation? It's too late. I mean, that's how uh, when I was saying, could I forgive her? I was just saying no because it's. It's like the ten to one thing. It's if if she did it now, what would it mean? It just means that she could have done it at any time. Right. That. But there is a perfect response to this, which doesn't. I mean, there's no possibility of a relationship with your mom, obviously, right? But there still is a perfect response. Oh my God! I never realized any of this. Uh, it, you know, I. How terrible of me! Let me you know, get into therapy and try and figure all this stuff out and Right. You know, right. I hope that I hope someday you can forgive me. I'll completely understand if you never do. Um you know any and anything here's, here's, you need. Here's thirty here's thirty thousand dollars for your therapy. Sure, sure. I mean they are paying for my therapy, so Okay. Okay. And here's thirty thousand dollars for whatever you want to move out or something like that. Yeah, here's $50,000. We're going to buy you a condo and hand you the keys. We're going to pay for your therapy. We're going to pay for your education because we have done you such unbelievable wrong. And we're so shocked at what we have done to our precious child. And we so totally understand that you want nothing to do with us but to expurgate, to do what we can to expiate the guilt that we feel, the wrong that we have done to you. We are going to make the next couple of years without us around the happiest and most relaxed and contented that you could conceivably have. We're going into therapy. You go into therapy. We're going to disconnect from all of our friends, I'm going to quit my corrupt job, I don't know what your parents do, but whatever, right? We're going to make a complete change, we're going to get sell the house, give you half the money, we're going to go and move to an ashram and study your navels and become better people, right? That's what happens when you realize you've participated in a crime of decades. That's what you do, you take responsibility and your actions completely change. Sure. But they're not doing that. Oh, no, no. What are they doing? Same same thing as always. It's just right on the surface. I mean... Yeah, nothing happened. Nothing happened. You know what? If we pretend that nothing happened, maybe he'll pretend that nothing happened. You know, let's just let's just hide out for a little bit. Let's just go on as if nothing happened and maybe he'll get so disoriented that he'll drop this whole thing. Let's just keep sneaking around. Let's pretend that nothing happened and maybe maybe it'll all just go away. In some ways do don't I want that? Don't I want them to pretend that? Well, I don't know. I can't answer that for you. Is that what you want? Do you want them to pretend that that they never hurt you? Actually, no, I do know that you don't want that, because otherwise you wouldn't have said anything. Because before, they were pretending that they never hurt you, right? And then you went and told them that they hurt you. Well, but so I was... Of course you wanted was, something uh, different. The... Sorry, go ahead. I, yeah, that is, that is an interesting point that you make about why I got into this in the first place. I, uh, you know, my mom, she was asking, you know, 
why are you so distant? You know, and uh, I don't know why. I don't know why I told her, but I, I felt like being authentic with her. Right. I felt and that was tired the right thing of, to of do. not being authentic. Yeah, that was the right thing to do. The important thing to do now is to process what has happened afterwards. Sure. And what's happened afterwards is it's like you never said anything. Except your mom says, you know, I think this relationship is much better. Is it better for you? Oh, no, not really. Not, not at all. Right. I would suspect... I don't, I don't it's think it's better for her either. Well, but I mean, you don't know that and that doesn't matter. What, what you do know and what does matter is that she's saying, our relationship is better... And she's not asking, is it better for you? That's what I was laughing at right. earlier. That's what I'm laughing at earlier, right? Sure. She's not asking if... She's saying, our relationship is better. Like, for both of you. But she's not asking you if it's better for you. I mean, if, 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 uh, if Christina and I were having sex problems, and I just changed something, and I said, hey, our sex life is so much better now than it was before, I mean, wouldn't I have to ask her at some point? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to conflate this with your mom, but that's kind of what I was laughing at before, right? <laughs> Can I make a unilateral yeah, decision about uh. the quality of a relationship? Not a real relationship. No. So now you're not any more real to her than you were before. She's you you don't even need to be part of this relationship. See, this is what people don't understand when I talk about defooing, and it's because I've been hedging it a little bit, but we might as well talk about it clearly now. Defooing is not breaking from your family. Defooing is recognizing that you have no family. Defooing is not ending a relationship. Defooing is recognizing that there is no relationship. Right? If you're thrown out of a plane, and then you hit the water, and two days later you say, hey, you know what, I think I got thrown out of a plane. That's not when you deplane. You deplane two days ago. <laughs> right? You never had a relationship with your parents. Defooing is just recognizing that there never was a relationship. That you were just a little wind-up vanity toy for them and, and that your participation is completely immaterial. You don't have to be there. That's what's so terrible about these, these family relations. Is that p children go through entire lives of feeling guilty and manipulated and controlled and angry and upset. They don't even have to be there. The parents don't care fundamentally other than for appearances. But you told the truth to your mom because you wanted her to change. And what you wanted her to do, fundamentally, was to ask you about your experience within the family and to keep asking you and keep asking you and keep asking you. For her to be even remotely curious about your experience of being her child. But she didn't. She went on as if nothing happened, and then she said, I think our relationship is a lot better, which is not a decision she gets to make. And she doesn't consult you, and she doesn't ask you, she just makes it up for herself. That's not a relationship. You're like not even an imaginary friend to her. 
you as an individual, I don't mean you as the category son and blood of my loins or whatever, right? You as an individual with your own thoughts and feelings do not exist for her. And then when I say oh, to no. people, well, you should stop no. seeing your family, they say, but, but, but we have this relationship. It's, but you don't. And how yeah. could you? How could she have a relationship? How can you have a relationship with someone you've tortured? You can only torture a child if you have no relationship with that child to begin with. You can only torture, beat, insult, cheat, humiliate, degrade a child if you have no bond with that child to begin with. You can't hurt someone that you care about. I mean, you can do it sort of off the cuff or briefly or whatever, but you cannot have a situation of systematic cruelty towards a child if you have any relationship with that child whatsoever. That is not sheer narcissistic, brutal, sadistic, sociopathic consumption. Need. Your needs. Your mother's needs. Always. Never. Yours. You're not allowed to have needs. Right? So, whenever somebody says to me, I was abused as a child, I know that there's no bonding I know that there's no empathy. I know that there's no relationship. I know that there's no curiosity about the child. I know that this will never change because keep people who are capable of torturing a child for many years are never capable of any kind of real relationship. It's absolutely, completely, and totally impossible. It's like asking a mute to become an opera singer. So there is no relationship. And there never was, and there never can be. And defooing is just saying, okay, I accept that. I'm not going to lie to myself about like, that anymore. It's like just not going back and visiting my Legos for Christmas or something like that. Or no, it's like not like going back to, to play with your Legos that blew your fucking hands off. And right. that will blow your forearms off, and next time will blow your arms off. Right? You're a young man. You really need your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like breaking the tension with a good old <laughs> masturbation joke, is there? <laughs> My wife is too innocent to even know what that oh, means. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, Steph, I, I appreciate it as always. Thanks for helping put that in context. No problem, man. No problem. Just uh, keep us posted with how it's going. And, and I know this stuff is really tough, but you're doing fantastically. Just observe. Yeah, you don't have to do a thing. You just have to observe your experiences when you are with your mom and your dad and your family. How do I feel? How do I feel? How do I feel when I'm having conversations with Steph and... He actually is asking me a couple of questions and really listening to what it is that I'm saying and giving me some maybe some useful stuff. And how is it that I feel when I'm in the contact of these abusers, right? How is it that I feel? What's my emotional state? Am I guarded? Do I know what I'm feeling? Do I know what is going on for me? Do I know what, what, what my heart rate is at? Do I know whether my hands are sweating? Do I know whether my spine is tense? Do I know whether my muscles are rigid? Do I know what it's like to be fully in the presence of these dangerous people? That's that's really interesting. That's a good point. Right, your body is absolutely, completely, and totally telling you everything that you need to know. The body memory is, is perpetual. The unconscious memory, the body memory is perpetual. We have to push that away in order to survive these situations, but you're ready to launch now. You can begin to feel it. 
Alright, I'll, I'll pay a lot more attention then. Excellent, excellent. This will be great, because then you'll, you'll uh, burst into tears and strangle people with the turkey. That's going to be excellent. <laughs> I'm not sure how you strangle people with a turkey, but by God, I, if, you, if you record that, put it on YouTube. You'll make a fortune. Maybe something like that uh, Mr. Bean, <laughs> where he ends up with a turkey on his head. Yeah. Joey and Friends does it too. Anyway, listen, enough, uh, enough inane references. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we can open up to anybody else who may have another comment, issue, question, or problem. And uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, great job, Stephen. Uh, fantastically done. Oh, thanks, Steph. I'll talk to you. Uh, talk to you later. Okay. All right. Do we have any other questions, comments, issues, problems, compliments, uh, expletives? If not, uh, Steph, I had a short one, I guess, about something related to the foo. Um, Actually, it kind of relates to also um, your relationship as an individual to, to yourself in the past. Uh, and it kind of also has, has to do mostly with obligations you've incurred from your past individual self. So let's say I had a relationship with a friend or a parent or whatever. And at some point, let's say when I was 18 or 17, I made a promise to them. And now looking back, I realize that I made a huge mistake. Uh, I mean, what what is my ethical course of action at this point if I'm trying to convince this person that, you know, th to revoke the promise and, you know, to set me free of my ethical bonds? I mean, do I even have an ethical bond in that case if the different me in the past made that promise? Well, I don't think that you... I mean, this is my particular standpoint, and, and we'll talk about two situations here. One is obligations that you incur as an adult. Um... You are never a slave to a promise, right? You can't save, you can't sign away your own moral independence, right? So I can't make a contract with you saying, "Dude, I'm going to be your slave, and I'm no longer, I'm no longer responsible for myself," right? So, uh, given that that's the case, uh, promises are always revocable. Promises are always revocable. You cannot sign away your free will. You can always, at any time, anywhere in your life, choose to revoke a commitment, right? People sign up for subscriptions for Free Domain Radio, and occasionally they'll cancel, right? And they'll cancel because whatever, whatever, right? But even if they wrote to me and said, I'm going to support you for two years, man, and then after six months they say, screw this, I hate it, you know, <laughs> causing trouble in my family. My kids are listening to this now, it's not much fun anymore. Then uh, they just cancel, right? And that's fine. And see, even if they'd signed a contract with me, they, they're t totally free to cancel. There may be consequences to them canceling, Right? There may be consequences. So in a legal situation, you can always choose to welch on your debts. Right? And and there's just going to be consequences to it. Now, if you uh, if you can pay a debt and the person is honorable and, and, and they've provided you the service, then it's wrong. I mean, if you order something from eBay and you don't pay, then it's stealing, right? So we, we're all fine with that. But that's sort of the one situation which is as an adult, right? Now... The other situation is when you're a 17-year-old child and you make a promise to your parents, right? So let's say you make a promise to your dad. He says, "I'm going to pay for your high school. I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay for you to go to the first two years of university if you work for me for a year after you graduate." And let's say he's an abusive guy, right? He beat you, yelled at you. He's a bad guy, right? Yeah, take the goddamn money and then just walk. That would be my situation. When you're in the thrall, when you're under the control of bad people, bad people, parents and so on, when you're a child, 
Yeah, it's like a state of nature. You just do whatever you can, say whatever you can to get whatever you want. It's a state of nature. I don't, I state don't think nature. you owe anybody. You can lie to them. You can, you can cheat them. I mean, it's a total state of nature. And to me, I would have no ethical problems with somebody saying, with the full knowledge that they were never going to go and work for their dad, yeah, you know what, I will take 20 grand from you to go to college, and I know that I'm never going to come and work for you. Absolutely, I would have no problem with that, right? Because this guy stole your childhood, right? So for, for me, uh, getting back, of course, I mean, I've made this argument before with student loans, right? You can apply for student loans or grants even uh, from the government because, you know, they stole your money when you were a kid. They stole your childhood by stuffing you in these stupid schools. Uh, your parents may have stolen your childhood and your happiness and given you a huge debt that you have to work through in terms of, of therapy and stuff, right? So, yeah, I just grab whatever you, I just, I don't see any, uh, honor is only for the honorable, right? Integrity is only for people who have integrity. So I don't think that you owe people a squat if they have a, if they exact promises from you out of force, right? Like if <laughs> it's like saying if I'm in jail and and I can get away if I tell the guard I'm going to the bathroom and I don't actually have to go, if I can escape through the bathroom escape. window, I, I, am I not allowed to lie to the guard and say I have to go to the bathroom when I don't? Well, of course I am, right? So that's sort of my take on it. But tell me what you think. No, that's that's a good point, and yeah, my childhood was stolen by the public education system. But uh, besides that, I, I, beyond the actual um, state of nature case, which is you know when the children is you know he has no choice in the matter of who who parents him. Uh, I, I'm more, I want to focus more on the adulthood to adulthood example. Let's say I mean let's say it's it's in a friendship, right? And I'm I'm about age 25, and I make a promise to my friend, right? I, I'm an adult, but then I increase my awareness, you know, I come to Freedom Wing Radio, I learn all these new great things, and uh, suddenly uh, I realize that this friend is not acceptable. You, you talked about when you break a contract, you know, you can choose to take the consequences. Uh, what if this friend isn't particularly, let's say, abusive or, you know, uh, violent or anything? Simply, I find him extremely boring, and I realize I've just put myself into a, a horrible quandary. I mean, should I just since it's boredom, should I just accept the consequences and, you know, abide by my contract? I, I mean, See, let's say there's sure no legal... I'm, legal. Sorry, I'm not sure what you mean by contract in this sense. Do you mean like a money contract? Do you mean like... I'm not sure what you mean by contract in terms of friendship. I guess more of like a... Let's say an agreement to to somehow look out for each other in, in, one, in, in one regard or to just some sort of chosen positive obligation we've taken uh, that maybe wouldn't have uh, quantifiable legal ramifications or you know there oh, were, you mean like uh, maybe it's our fault you know like, uh, gonna be like sure if, i mean if you want i mean no 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 bff is ridiculous because that's like <laughs> signing away your free will just kidding. but <laughs> maybe i'm thinking more of like a Okay, you you help me study when I'm in law school, and I'll help you study when you're in medical school four years down the road, or something like that. Right, right. right. Okay. Uh, I mean, is it our fault for not creating an opt-out clause in the first place? I mean, is that a mistake? If you create a contract with an opt-out clause, then maybe it's invalid, or...? Well, the first thing is you, you can't have contracts in that way. That's not a contract, right? I mean, the, the first thing that I would say is that if you feel that you need to create those kind of reciprocal promises in a relationship, it's not really a relationship. It's not really a friendship. I get, you should just want to help your friend study because you want to help your friend study because it's fun, because you, you learn something, because it'll help him, right? But 
I don't think that you can say, well, I'm only going to help you study if you help me study in the future. Right? That, that to me is not a friendship. A friendship is so you just, you know, like I don't say to Christina, I'll mow the lawn if you do the dishes. Right? I just mow the lawn. Right? And then she just does the dishes or whatever. And then she hands me a list of all the other things I need to do, which never gets <gasps> completed. Anyway, we'll come back to that another time. Anyway, so uh, I would say that it's not really a friendship if it's, you know, if it's a pendulum. It's like, I'll do this for you, but then you should do this for me. I mean, you should just want your friend to succeed. You should enjoy spending time with him. And if that means helping him study, you should do that out of the goodness of your heart. If it's a drag for you to help him study... And then you think that that creates an obligation for him to help you study because you didn't enjoy it. Well, then what you're saying is, my sacrifice creates sacrifices in other people. But logically, that's not true. If you choose to forego pleasure, that has no obligation for anyone else to forego pleasure, right? Right. Well, I guess now now I look at it this way, it does make sense. I was just concerned about, about, uh, like I said earlier, the relationship between your your individual self now and your individual self of the past. And and I'm just wondering about the types of problems that are incurred when you don't have knowledge and you make a bad decision. And then, you know, down the road you have the knowledge and that's it. I guess you just have to man up and accept your stupidity of the past. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if, you, uh, if you get married to someone and it turns out to be the wrong person, or she doesn't grow, or she's hostile, or she regresses, or, and you grow, or whatever, then you, you know, you just get divorced, and you take the consequences of that, right? There's going to be a cost to it, and, and this and that and the other, but yeah, you can, you can break your obligations at any time. I mean, otherwise, otherwise we, would, uh, we would be enslaving ourselves, which wouldn't be logically possible. No, but that about does it for me anyway, so thanks. Oh, thank you. That's a very interesting question. Um, all right, did we have any other tidy little shots uh, issues uh, before uh, the end of the show? Go listen to five, 856. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, if, if we have any, I'll just give a second here um, uh, in case anybody had any last-minute questions. Otherwise, we will end the show for today. Somebody said, what does Steph think about FSP? The Free State Project? I like the Free Self Project. I'm not so much on the Free State Project. No, I, th- I think it's... Uh, I mean, if you want to go move to New Hampshire, go move to New Hampshire. But don't go to move... Don't move to New Hampshire because you think that you're going to be able to vote in a libertarian government. I mean, the federal government just does what it wants, right? So there's... I think it's... Was it Colorado or something like that? They have legalized uh, marijuana like an ounce or less. You don't get prosecuted according to the local laws. But the feds just come in and do it anyway, right? I mean, there's, there's no possibility that no political possibility. action will free us from the government. This is a multi-generational project. Multi-generational and project. there's just no possibility that political action is going to free us from the government. The government's on the last its last decade anyway, right? I mean, <laughs> basically, when you're trying to steer the ship after it hit the iceberg, right? You're sort of trying to spin the wheel of the Titanic after it's hit the iceberg. I mean, the, sh- the state's already going down. I mean, the, the U.S. state I'm talking about here. I mean, the positive obligations are just so staggering uh, and so unsustainable. There's no possibility. Forget- moving to New Hampshire is not going to make you free. Moving to New Hampshire is not going to make you free. In fact, it's going to interfere with your freedom because there are all these damn groups who want you to come and <laughs> join their free projects, freedom projects. So, uh, no, work on yourself. Work on yourself. This is a multi-generational project. And uh, you want to make sure to maximize your freedom in the present, which means don't waste time with politics. All right. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. If we want to talk about it more next week, that would be great. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. But uh, uh, at least you'll still have some idea where I stand to begin with.
Well, thank you, uh, everyone, so much for dropping past this uh, long weekend. I think it was a great, great show. I think that's some of the best sets of questions we've had um, since uh, the last show. No, in a while. So I really do appreciate it. You guys have been uh, fantastic, uh, been wonderful to debate with, and uh, uh, thank you for being my uh, drug of choice. I will talk to you soon.